Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right, we have with us today Clay Risen. Clay is the deputy op-ed editor of the New York Times and the award-nominated author, Single Malt, A Guide to the Whiskies of Scotland, The Bill of the Century, The Epic Battle for the Civil Rights Act. He wrote a popular book called American Whiskey, Bourbon and Rye, A Guide to the Nation's Favorite Spirit and A Nation on Fire, America in the Wake of the King Assassination. That's a lot of work for a, a historian who is not an academic, Clay. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks right. for having me. Uh, thank you for joining us. Well, this new book is our topic, another history book. It's called The Crowded Hour, Theodore Roosevelt, The Rough Riders, and the Dawn of the American Century. Uh, you know, I have to begin with the first photo listed in the book because it goes to an event with which you open the book, and that is the big parade. It's in September 30th in 1899, and it struck me because the photo, it, it's, it's really another era. The governor of the state of New York, whose name is Teddy Roosevelt, he's there at the front. The photo shows there, is it Fifth Avenue? Mm-hmm. In, in the front, and he's got, he's doffing his, his top hat. He's alone in the front. He, he's mounted on horse, and the other, the, the military parade is, is behind him. And yes, just to think of, of a leader, he's gonna be vice president in two years. And, and he's leading the military parade. He's just back from, he's just back from this heroic occasion. And everyone was crazy for Teddy Roosevelt. You bring this out very well. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna get into a lot of that, but why was everyone so taken by this man? Why, why did he, he just exploded with this, with this event and then shot upward to the top. Yeah, it's, it's fun to go back and read the, the kind of the history of Theodore Roosevelt from beginning forward because we think of him oftentimes kind of in the lens backwards. So of course everything he did was heroic. Of course his life was uh, one series of successful moves and that he was always famous and, and moving upward. But you know, the fact is that in 1896, before he joined the McKinley administration, you know, Roosevelt felt that his life was, was over uh, in, in the sense of he, uh, history had passed him by, he wrote in several, several letters to friends. And then very quickly, the Cuban crisis broke out, the Spanish-American War began, he left the administration, went to become, uh, as, as I recount in the book, the head of the Rough Riders, and it gave him a national prominence within the public that he had craved 
it never quite achieved. He had always been a figure of popularity within certain circles, and he was uh, a best-selling author. It's not that his name wasn't known, but suddenly he was this heroic figure. And I think the importance is, goes beyond the fact that he was this celebrated cavalry commander in the war. It's that he represented something wholly new for the country. Uh, up until the end of the 19th century, sort of from the Civil War era up to the end, America was led by, uh, you know, fairly, fairly capably by uh, the Republican Party, by veterans, by uh, a generation of, of men who saw the world <clears throat> in, in very specific ways. And they saw America's place in the world in a very specific, fairly isolationist way. And that things were, you know, sort of you know, small government growth, everything would be fine if we just kept to certain principles. And, and that worked, but of course, by the end of the century, it was kind of boring. And, and, and things were starting to move beyond the, that kind of stricture. And Roosevelt represented something new. He was heroic, he was dynamic. He was, at the time, you know, he was still a young man. And, and here he was, not just leading this charge up San Juan Hill and, and then becoming governor, but bringing all kinds of new ideas about reform, about national unity, about how the country needed to come into this new century in, 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 a, in a progressive and, a, and aggressive way. It was just very different from anything anyone had heard up to that point. And you, you see the Spanish-American War really as a hinge in America's uh, geo-global position. Before yeah. this, we have this sort of isolationist, and, and, and then afterwards? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I think it's important to always note that uh, there are sort of symbolic moments. What actually happens on the ground is, is a little different. Uh, America, of course, through the early 20th century had its isolationist moments, uh, uh, long periods of times. But, but I think the Spanish-American War represents a moment where it was the first time that we uh, voluntarily went to war overseas. And obviously Cuba is not that far overseas. It's, uh, but well, it, you, one thing you mentioned in the book, this actually is the first foreign engagement since the 1840s. Right, yeah, of course. That's a long time. For, it is, for, and, and even then, you know, it was a war with Mexico, which had its own particulars. And America had never really been that kind of country that went out and infected. You know, we had, have all these admonishments from the founding fathers. We do not go forth in search of monsters to destroy. Uh, Washington, Jefferson, Madison all said, we need to keep our own counsel. And by the end of the 19th century, you have figures like Roosevelt and a large part of the public that was tired of that, that said, you know, here we are with this country that inarguably is going to be economically dominant in the 20th century. And we see all these other countries that we think we're just as good as who are asserting themselves around the world, whether it's through uh, commercial power or through uh, empire or colonies. We want to be in that game. And at the same time, we don't want to lose our, our morals and our ethical position, you know, the sort of the, the founding principles that guided us through a lot of the 19th century. And what the Spanish-American War does is it, it brings uh, some sort of uh, synthesis of those, of those two competing ideals because it's the first time that we, it's not only the first foreign intervention in decades, but it's also the first humanitarian intervention. You know, it's funny to read some of the, or not funny, but it's interesting to read some of the rhetoric around the Spanish-American War, the lead up to it. And it feels so familiar to someone on this side of the 20th century, mm -hmm. uh, on our side, because 
these tropes about you know, this is America's job to go in and bring liberty to these uh, to these oppressed people, to go and defeat this dark enemy who is oppressing the people, to bring liberty to uh, to be kind of the vanguard of freedom. All these things that to us sound kind of tired. Uh, at the time, it was you know again this was something very new, a new idea, and it was something that Roosevelt really pushed. You know, we need to be the country that goes out into the world, not to oppress, not to form colonies, uh, not to kind of draw the resources away from the rest of the world, but actually to come and bring liberty and freedom. This is what you mean, I think, when you say, on page 11, you say, the public supported the American invasion of Cuba because they believed their country was engaged in a different kind of war and a more noble use of power than they were used to seeing play out in Europe. Exactly. So much of the debate, and there really was a debate in the 1880s and 1890s about what is America's role in the world. And the overriding idea was we can't be like Europe. Uh, we can't be a country, A, that has huge armies. We don't want a large army. Uh, every country in Europe had an army larger than ours. Uh, most, I think you, you say that the, our, our army by law couldn't, by, at this time, could not be more than 26,000? That's right. 26,000 <laughs> enlisted and a few thousand more officers. Yeah. Uh, virtually every other country in Europe, every, virtually every other country in, in the Western Hemisphere of any size had an army larger than ours. And so these were things that we saw as you know, absolutely vital to keeping our uh, the size of the state down, mm -hmm. uh, to keeping our uh, global adventurism in check. Uh, you know, having a small army, having kind of very constrained foreign policy goals. And this was a topic of great conversation on the, on the local level and then the national level. And, and then the war happens, and I think it's really important that the war played out the way it did because people got behind a very different idea of American power. And when we think about the American military, we see it as a major force when we think even of World War I, the way that the, the, the doughboys came in and, and really, really shifted things. But just before the Spanish-American War, foreign powers regarded the American military as sort of nothing. Oh, absolutely. And, and they knew our economic power. Yeah. But our, our geopolitical force was. was no, and, and the great question from the European perspective, the great question of the Spanish American War was how, how well could the United States transform its economic power into military power? One of the things that McKinley did as a way of scaring the Spanish was before he declared war, when he was still hoping to avoid war he got Congress to pass a $50 million war appropriations bill. And the ease with which that happened. He said two days later. Yeah. It was on his desk. Yeah. And after he requested it, right? Yes. And, and McKinley's hope was this will scare the Spanish. It'll show them, look, we can convert our economic, we are such a rich country that we can convert our economic power into military power overnight. So back off. And a lot of European countries saw that and you know, we're, we're skeptical of whether it actually, you know, it's easier, it's easy to, uh, to dish out money. Does that actually transform into, into force? Mm -hmm. And once the war was declared, that became the overriding question and, and it was not clear that it could be. It's, why, it's one of the reasons why the Rough Riders are such a central part of this because there's an, an example of kind of America having to gear up very quickly 
Uh, we couldn't just train a bunch of volunteers. You know, ultimately a million men volunteered for the Spanish-American War, but you can't just take those men and throw them into combat. It's amazing how when the war was declared and Teddy Roosevelt starts to form the Rough Riders, thousands and thousands wanted to be, be part of it. And he turned most of them away and they were crushed. Yeah. They, they were devastated. In, well, in, 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 yeah, and, and this is this new generation where their parents said, no, don't do it. We know what war is like. We've been to war. We, yeah. you know, your uncle or your grandfather or maybe even, you know, your father as a young man fought in the Civil War. A lot of them died. We know this is terrible. Don't do it. But these young men, of course, I mean, this is just, this is true. This has always been true, right? We know this from the Greeks, that, that the young are always motivated by the glorious stories right. of their ancestors, not by the horrors of war. They hear the stories. They don't hear the horrors. They hear about the glory, and they want to rush off and have that same experience. Right. You, you know, we'll bring it down to, to Teddy Roosevelt. He is the, he's the undersecretary or assistant secretary of the Navy in, in McKinley's first term. And so it's an important part of his job, he says, is to, to put the American military on a more prepared fitting, uh, footing. You say Roosevelt liked to talk about preparedness as an end in itself, as if war were something he opposed. In fact, it was something he desired. And you bring out a lot of quotes and, and a lot of behavior. War, he, he was, is, is it too far to say he was in love with the glory of war? He saw it really, there's something America needs a war right now. Would you go that far? I would say that Roosevelt, I think the war is really important in his career because up until then, uh, he had a very uh, almost puerile idea about war and, and certainly had a bloodlust about him that uh, he had no problem talking about flaunting as uh, a man in his uh, 20s and 30s. But I think the war changed him and, it, and you see it in his presidency because all the things, a lot of the things that he called for as kind of a lay, or just a writer and, and a public figure in the 1890s, he was calling for war with Germany, calling for war with Britain, calling for uh, sending, you know, conscripting men to go off to fight because that's an important part of being a man. Uh, he, he dialed a lot of that back as, as president. And, and a lot of the things that he embraced as president were, I think, informed by his war experience. Yeah. And he wasn't a very self-reflective man. This isn't something that he talked about in his memoirs or, or even personal letters. But you see the way that he embraced peacemaking and the way that he embraced uh, arms control and the way that he saw the role of the United States as being a country not, as, uh, not out there to dominate the world, but to help bring prosperity and peace to the world. It's a very different Roosevelt mm -hmm. than the one that people might have encountered in the 1890s. Now, we're, we're talking generally, but I want to let listeners know that this is really a work mostly of narrative history. Mm -hmm. And narrative histories are as good as the stories they tell. And so I, I want to go to a particular episode in the book. It takes place after you, you, you track the war's beginning, Teddy Roosevelt in, in this, and also many other people involved putting, trying to put the army together. McKinley's administration is, is fumbling somewhat with all the logistics. Uh, and we, we finally, war is declared. They have finally gotten to land in Cuba it's through the ships. And you, you, you have a lot of 
uh, stories, vignettes to tell along the way of the, the things that happened, some of them comical, some of them dark. This is a moment after they've landed and Roosevelt is leading his men. They're, they're on uh, going up into, up into the hills and they're heading toward a particular town. And here's what you write. The trail to Las Guasimas ran along the side of the ridge. To the right, the forest was thinner. So they're, they're, they're marching through some jungles, some, some plantations along, but sloped steeply downward. Beyond ran a barbed wire fence to the left and a field rising gently upward toward a line of trees. Carpeted with grass almost as soft as the turf in the garden of an old English country house, Marshall wrote, someone there. Up ahead, the trail turned sharply left and disappeared back into the woods. Now, they haven't encountered any resistance yet. Where are the Spaniards? You know, have they just withdrawn? Roosevelt, in between bits of conversation with Marshall, looked over at the barbed wire, the residue of an abandoned plantation. Something was off about it. He dismounted to get a closer look. This wire has been cut today, he said. What makes you think so, Marshall replied. Well, the end is bright, and there has been enough dew even since sunrise to put a light rust on it, had it not been lately cut. Up ahead, Capron told Wood he had a feeling that there were Spanish troops nearby. He asked permission to reconnoiter. Wood nodded, another, uh, the, the, the other leader of the troop. The colonel went back to the column and told Roosevelt to pass down the word. Silence. Roosevelt took the opportunity to mention the rapid attrition of men from the heat. Men, it's, it's, it's 120 degrees. Men, they're not used to this, so a lot of them are fainting, uh, fainting away on the march. Dr. Lamott reports that the pace is too fast for the men and that over 50 have fallen out from exhaustion, he told Wood. I have no time to bother with sick men now, Wood replied. I merely repeated what the surgeon reported to me. I have no time for them now. I mean that we are in sight of the enemy. Most of the officers tied their horses to fence posts and ordered their men to ready their rifles. The line clicked with the sound of rounds being chambered. After about 10 minutes, Wood ordered the men to spread out in a line. I don't know if I should keep reading because <laughs> everyone I think wants to know, but I, I, want to, uh, I want to compliment you on the drama here. This is a crucial moment that you picked up. And you say that actually this became a crucial moment for Roosevelt. Everyone probably suspects Roosevelt is exactly correct here. And all because he, he spotted something about this barbed wire. But you say this was something happened to him at this moment. Do you want to go into that? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I think is uh, really uh, dramatic about the whole experience for Roosevelt is you know, he's 38 years old and he had never served in the military. He had really never, he had obviously, people know he was a rancher. He certainly was uh, used to some, some amount of kind of uh, uh, deprivation uh, on the frontier or whatever you want to call it. But combat was something very different. And there was a lot of questions about whether he could be an effective combat leader and or whether he would wither under pressure and the same right, thing right. for uh for the soldiers you know it's one thing to say here are some rough and ready guys some cowboys and college athletes and they look good in a training field can they actually fight and this engagement uh which was not the main engagement it's kind of a prelude right to, this is really just a skirmish yeah exactly. on, on, along the way but exactly and and yet uh they came under some you know significant spanish fire they were ambushed 
and or they knew they were walking into it, but suddenly there it was. And they, the the unit as a whole, performed admirably. Right. And Roosevelt himself never dropped the ball. Uh, was moving very quickly. I mean, there were things that later he sort of che- you know chided himself about doing. He didn't take his saber off, so he kept running around and tripping on his saber. But but as as a as a leader and as someone who had no no fear about putting himself out in the front and leading his men, he right. was perfect. And and the and the really important thing is that you know, you mentioned Marshall. Uh, there were several other leading court. Marshall was one of the leading. Sort of war correspondents uh, in American uh, journalism at the time, and all these guys saw this happening. They were with the Rough Riders in that skirmish, right? And they wrote back these glowing profiles of of the combat. And for the rest of the country, you know, back home, watching the war unfold and knowing that the Rough Riders were about to be tested, these reports were even better than they could have hoped. It's what made these men heroes. Long before the Battle of San Juan Hill. Yeah, and I, I don't want to underestimate the the seriousness of this engagement. I'm going to read another paragraph. This is after the shooting has started. Back in the main column, Theodore Miller heard a few stray shots. Then suddenly, quote, volley after volley, nine Rough Riders went down in the first nine minutes. So that, that, that's pretty pretty quick for a skirmish. Fire was coming coming in from up ahead and over to the right. The Spanish had arranged about 1,000 men in a V-shaped formation and cut down trees to create fire fields through the woods, the source of the sounds that Captain Nichols had heard the previous night. Later, Roosevelt and other Rough Riders concluded that the birds they thought they heard cooing a few hours earlier were probably Spanish scouts sending signals back to their line that the Americans were approaching. Uh, Good stuff, bud. No, thank you. The, 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 no, no, I, I think I think if people want to find out that they're going to have to they're going to have to buy the book. But let's let's get back to uh, some of the some of the general questions. Just uh, Roosevelt's, you said the early bloodlust. So part of that was personal, not just geopolitical. Him sensing America is going to enter the world stage. We've got to make an army, and we have to we have to prove ourselves mm-hmm. out there. No, but there was something personal going on there in him a manhood issue yeah well i mean uh, yeah there's you know roosevelt's childhood has always been a subject of intense psychohistorical speculation and uh probably not that much speculation you know he was a boy who uh was pretty pretty underdeveloped as a child and and you know i think later we'd have called him a you know 98 pound weakling or whatever uh but he saw himself that way that's the important thing is that he uh, saw himself as someone who uh, was weak, and his father at one point, he worshipped his father, and his yeah. father told him, you know, some men are born uh, are born with all the strength they need, other men have to build themselves, and, and you're one of those, you have to build yourself. And so all through his teens and, and into his 20s, he, he built himself. He built himself physically, he built himself intellectually, uh, but he was one of these guys who, you know, I think, you know, certainly part of that building was... Uh, was taking on the biggest guy. He is somebody who you walk into a room and the best way to assert yourself is pick a fight with the biggest guy. And that was Roosevelt's personality, especially mm-hmm. as a young man. And and that carries through to his view about what what is America going to do? You know, America is in you know in a way is kind of this 98 pound weakling and building itself. It walks into the the room with all the other world powers and you know pick a fight. Now Spain was not the 
biggest guy in the room, but you know, it'll do as a, as a European power that you need to bloody somebody's nose. I mean, I think he was thinking in those terms to some extent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't want to reduce it just to that. There's more sophistication to Roosevelt's thought, but, but a large part of it was this kind of uh, imposition of his own experience onto his thoughts about the world. Now, a guy like that can rub a lot of people the wrong way. But you, you say that when they opened the training headquarters outside San Antonio, and you've got all these rugged fellows, some cowboys, a lot of them from Arizona, coming from the West, and Roosevelt shows up, and he's got all these fancy accoutrements, this sword and all, the, all these, these gifts that he's received. And thousands of camp visitors come that day to, to see him. And one might think that a lot of the rugged soldiers say, some Eastern dude coming along and let's, let, let's take him down. But they loved him. Mm-hmm. Why? What was well, it about Roosevelt that inspired enormous loyalty among those he led? Well, I think actually he, uh, it's what he did. It's nothing, it, it was nothing inherent in who he was. You know, he, a lot of the men had heard these stories about Roosevelt as, as a, a guy who had lived on the West, or lived in the West, lived on the frontier, had, had been a rancher, and, you know, he shows up in San Antonio, and, and a, he's shorter than they expected, he's got a high-pitched voice, he wears thick glasses, <laughs> he's got, like you said, all these uh, Brooks Brothers clothes on. That's right, Brooks, I didn't know, you, you wrote that. Brooks Brothers did a lot of those well, yeah. Civil War and, uniforms. And to be fair, yeah, they did. Uh, to be fair to Roosevelt, all officers at the time, yeah. I mean, yeah. this is the state of the U.S. military, all officers had to pay for their pay own. For them. Right. So, so it was actually not a big deal that he went to Brooks Brothers because that's where you went. But nevertheless, okay. here he is. Right. Uh, but he did a couple of things, and it was natural to him. It wasn't something that he thought of as a strategy. He showed up in San Antonio in the hotel, the, ho- the Manger Hotel, which is still there, uh, the Manger Hotel, nice hotel, they said, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, you know, you don't have to stay with your men. You stay with us. We'll give you a room for free. Uh, you can go out and do your training, come back, have a nice bath, have a nice meal, get a nice, you know, nice bed to sleep in. And Roosevelt said, yeah, you know, thank you. But no, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do whatever my men do. Whatever, whatever deprivation they experience, I will be right there with them. If they sleep on the ground, I sleep on the ground. Right. So he did that, word got out that that's what he was, and uh, that's what he was planning. And when he got to camp and the men were waiting to hear from him, of course, some of them, they later wrote that they were pretty skeptical of yeah. who this guy was. Was it he just a, you know, was this all a myth? But he got up and, and he, he addressed them when he arrived. And he said, you know, I'm going to, what was his, his, his line was something like, uh, I will I will expend your lives as easily, or I will expend my life as as easily as I will expend yours. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're going to go into battle, and I'm going to tell you to go fight, and some of you will die, but I will be right there with you. And that's how he led the entire time. Yeah. Uh, if they went on a 20 mile march, he went on a 20 mile march. He didn't ride his horse. Uh, he marched with them. If they got up at at five in the morning and and did two hours of drills before breakfast, he was right there with them. And that's his, that's how he operated from the beginning to the end. And right away, it earned the men's, the, the love and loyalty of the men. When they took a train from San Antonio, ultimately to Florida, uh, he was given his own cabin as, a, as an officer. And he gave it up and said, well, no, this will be the sick room. This is for men who, are, who get sick. 
they can sleep in here. I'm just going to bunk with the rest of the men right. in the in in the you know general uh, you know back on the right. uh, the open carriage. Yeah. And that went a long way because it was also just not what people expected out of certainly someone like Roosevelt, yeah. uh, someone upper class, Eastern educated, but also as an officer as you know, it's just a very different way, a much more egalitarian way of thinking about leadership. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of the things I think also that's important about this war for anyone interested in Roosevelt's biography is that Roosevelt had never really been a leader up until the Spanish-American War. He had uh, he had mostly been kind of a gadfly. You know, he had been a New York State Assemblyman, a historian. He had he did have a ranch where he was in charge, but that didn't last very long. Generally speaking, he kind of floated around and suddenly you get this war and you know war has this has a, a a quality about it that brings out these latent capabilities in some men grant right. is a good example you know here grant sherman. you know sherman i mean these were men who were <laughs> you know destined for civilian anonymity. life were uh, yeah yeah and and suddenly roosevelt finds these leaders it's not that it's not that they weren't there but they were latent and suddenly the war gives him this opportunity to explore and develop himself as a leader. And so, you know, we think of Roosevelt as this great leader. He was this great, powerful president, transformed the presidency. But that wasn't necessarily who he was until he got to the war. And I think if you want to understand his leadership skills, you have to understand this period. There's a lesson in leadership in that at first he made a few mistakes. Yeah. And he 100% owned up to them and very, in a very humble way. So he, of course, a massive ego, but not that kind of ego. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things, one of his, one of the many skills that he developed as a leader was uh, the willingness to learn from his men and, and an openness right. about that. Yeah. You know, he 100% admitted uh, to the officers and to his men, you know, I don't, I am not a, a seasoned soldier. You know, I'm going to be learning with you as much as, as you're learning from me. Uh, but he would, the men would later on, they wrote about, you know, some of them wrote that, you know, if they woke up in the middle of the night, the one tent with a burning light uh, inside it would be Roosevelt's because he was inside reading these drill manuals and, and military manuals. And the next morning he would wake up and he would go to some of the men, some of the Rough Riders were veterans and uh, they had served in the regular army and he would go to them and he would quiz them and say, well, okay, the, the manual says to do this. But what about if this happens? You know, what about this? How do I do this? This manual is 20 years old. Have things changed? You know, he had these very, you know, really thought through questions. And so he was kind of learning as he went. So, you know, so that by the time they get to that battle, the Battle of Las Guasimas, uh, it wasn't like it was, it wasn't like he had walked in off Fifth Avenue. He had really gone through an intensive training process and a learning process where he made mistakes. Uh Clay, do you, do you want to say a, a quick word about land crabs? <laughs> you know, there's always that one thing when you're looking into a, a, a I think for probably for any author, but when you, you find that one detail when you're starting to work on a project and maybe you're not sure that this project is going to really, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love doing this. Or you get to a point and you say, I, this, this is kind of boring and dry. When I came across the fact that Cuba... Uh, no, not alone, but in Cuba, one of the things the men encountered was uh, these giant armies, thousands and thousands of these rabbit-sized land crabs that would course over 
the battlefield and just eat everything and so that bodies that were left behind would be picked apart and i mean these descriptions of these land crabs and the fear that men wounded men later recounted of the land crabs you know here they are wounded they hung around the hospital tents. Yes, they hung around hospital tents. Amputated and, limbs. Yes, really dis- was, For the land crabs. Th- yeah, that level of detail and gore. And, you know, as soon as I came across that in the memoirs, I thought, yep, this book is okay. for me. <laughs> okay, La- last question. Uh, near the end, you, you make a general statement that, that I'll just ask you to, to expand upon for a minute. One of the most striking things about war is how it brings into focus a society's most backward and forward-looking qualities. What did you have some example? You have some examples in mind for that. I mean, what 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 would give us a, a description of that happening? You could take the, the classical example, right, and that war is uh, what it, what is combat, but both the most valorous. Uh, the opportunity for men to be their most valorous and their most barbaric at the same time, often in the same action. Mm-hmm. And, and Roosevelt certainly saw that, and Roosevelt part- you know, participated in it. Uh, but I think as a country, you also see that, where uh, take bureaucracy. Um, the, uh, the, the army, despite being very small and, and fairly resource-starved, was a very bureaucratic and very inefficient operation. And the unwillingness of those bureaucrats to, during the war, start to sort of learn and maybe maybe change some of their ways, and instead really sticking to, um, you know, this is the way that we procure uh, really old meat for the men. It's, you know, rancid meat, but that's what the books say we're supposed to do. Right. So continuing with that, I think that, you know, in, in the service of tradition or bureaucracy or whatever, that's, that's terrible. Uh, it led to hundreds of men dying unnecessarily. On the other hand, the war brought into focus what is, you know, as, as we talked about, what is the purpose of all this? Why are we doing this? What is our, what is our goal as a country? Uh, where are we going? And it, and it reformed the military. One of the, one of the positive outcomes of the Spanish-American War was a series of reforms that McKinley and then Roosevelt, uh, as his successor, put into place that essentially is the nucleus of the army we have today and the National Guard uh, system that replaced the old, really cumbersome militias before it. All of this was the outcome of a fairly short, fairly tight war. And, And yet it brought into focus a lot of the questions that then had to be answered very quickly. So so it's it's both of those. And and I think that's one of the fascinating things about writing about a war is that there are all these, you call them hypocrisies, you call them contradictions, but really it's just men and women and, you know, just humans working through difficult questions in a very, uh, very exigent moment. Right, right. You know, I want one, another detail is um, right after the, the San Juan Hill uh, engagements, people were in theaters watching old newsreels about them. I didn't know that was that early. So, yeah, so there was, there was some f- old footage. Uh, there was a, a film crew, but a lot of what they were seeing were reenactments. Uh, and one of, the, one of the characters who's sort of a cameo, or one of the characters, one of the historical figures, 
who makes a cameo in in the book is Thomas Edison, who uh, was right. the brother-in-law of one of the Rough Riders. Uh, who, of, who dies? Who dies? Give away, but yeah. sorry. No, no, it's, it's fine. No, but uh, he, uh, yeah, he's Ted Miller's uh, uh, brother-in-law, and uh, but also then immediately after the war, invested in making movies for his for his movie company, uh, making these short films. Some of them filmed uh, in Central Park as uh, a stand-in for, for the Cuban countryside, right. making these movies about the charge up San Juan Hill and about the Battle of Las Cosimas and about uh, just sort of the, the ins and outs of, of the war. And they were uh, shown in theaters around the country. And people, because it was something so new, just the idea of, a, of moving pictures in any form was so new. And suddenly what people were, were seeing was not, oh, here's a train going down the track or here's, you know, here is a, a battle. I mean, it's a made-up battle, but it's a battle. We're seeing it on the screen. And, and it's part of what cr- helped create uh, the Rough Rider allure was suddenly everyone got to see the Rough Riders, not just uh, read about them or, or, or hear secondhand about what they did. The book is The Crowded Hour, Theodore Roosevelt, The Rough Riders, and the Dawn of the American Century. Thank you, Clay. Yeah, thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.